Chella. Join us in welcoming Daniel Sanderson. Daniel is a philosopher, a tiny home guy, a consultant, a writing platform founder. In our conversation, we talk about a myriad of things, starting with his business journey, he begins with beyond capitalism, ethics, CRMs, minimalistic lifestyle, home on a course, and much, much more. So, without any further ado, it's time to listen and share. Daniel, so if you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, where you're walking and what the whole scene is like today. Well, we started off wanting to have uh, a beautiful backdrop here of the 10 acre in an area <laughs> right. in, in Saanich. But, uh, you know, the video just didn't come through. So uh, basically, right. I can I can paint the picture for everybody. And that's sure, on the figure. Yeah, it's a. It's a 10-acre property, a very nice view uh, in the, you know, natural British Columbia, out in the woods, and it's uh, really not isolating, <laughs> uh, not like some people that have to be, you know, stuck in small quarters. I've actually got quite a bit of space in this, you know, time of uh, epidemic lockdown right. and quarantine, right? Okay. And in this property, you said, is this uh, is this a private property or is it public? Um, it's a uh, there. It's two parts. The ten acres is actually a private property uh, okay. in my family, and then there's another forty acres that is public and kind of shared by the community. Okay. Yeah, there was just the news yesterday that a lot of parks had closed. So, you know, that kind of uh, wasn't the greatest thing to hear, you know, for us Vancouverites. But I guess, you know, uh, I have a local park around me, so that works. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of parks and getting out and exploring nature. And, uh, you know, uh, we've talked before and you know that I'm a philosopher, right? And there's a word called a peripatetic. And okay. uh, what a peripatetic is, is it's uh, from the school of Aristotle. Hmm. And uh, it's doing philosophy as you're strolling and walking. And uh, I find that it, you know, I think it's uh, where, whether it's uh, therapeutic or, you know, just kind of helps the mental process, um, you know, getting out and, you know, having a conversation while you're walking and thinking is, is, uh, is something that's I think beneficial. Uh, so, yeah. And and has that helped with uh, with like coming up with some of your business ideas, or you know, in general with with the approach? Yeah. Well, I think over the years, um, you know, like when I went to university, right, and post secondary uh, education, I, 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 and in my youth, I quite honestly focused on on businesses from a standpoint of how do we make money? And you'd imagine that this is one of the key things that uh, people, individuals need to focus on in, in terms of the business that they want to set up. Um, I do feel that the landscape's changed a little bit, um, both internally and externally. And by that, I mean socially as well as individually. So first, the individual side of things. I'm uh, going to be 45 years young this year. Um, okay. I have, uh, you know, I have two kids and I have a fair amount of experience in terms of running a business and just life in general. So mm-hmm. as I gravitate towards the business activity that I want to involve myself with, 
Um, it's a balance. Um, as an entrepreneur, you want to find something that uh, you not only enjoy, but um, maybe dovetails into a, a bit of an interest that you have. And yeah, and we actually have the pleasure of um, like you and me, for example, on this on this conference call and and, and to a larger extent to the to the network that we're broadcasting to. Um, I hope that it resonates with some of some of the people listening, but more so than just trying to make money. I think the idea is, is there something that your listeners want to do that will um, energize them, that will motivate them, that um, give them the feeling that they're doing something uh, important. And if the money comes secondary to that because you've got the skills and the qualifications as a business leader, um, then isn't that kind of the best of both worlds, right? Right. Right. So that's, I think that's similar to, to concept I'd, I'd heard years ago about finding a guy, finding something that makes you happy, finding something that makes an impact and that also rewards you, you know, so it, it does it on all these fronts. So I, I'm assuming that's one of the reasons why you uh, started with the businesses of sorts. Yeah, well, I remember, I guess, early on in my uh, post-secondary career, I, you know, I mean, I really was thinking, money first and with an abundance of money, then I could do whatever I want. Money for me as, as somebody, you know, in my early days meant freedom, right? right? If I had enough money, then I could travel where I wanted. I could buy what I wanted. I could do what I wanted. Right. But there's always a difference between point A, B, and C. And I guess it's maybe a bit cliche and a truism to somewhat, you know, I always kind of default into, uh, into, into philosophical uh, uh and thinking but the idea is that isn't it the journey right like it is yeah yeah so okay so so just the the follow-up on that was that one of the reasons why uh bd consulting you know your previous uh uh, gig of started because it it is more it seems more focused on community conscious consulting as compared to to just you know getting a landing a big projects of sorts how would you say that affects the projects you take up, uh, you know, being environmentally conscious, community conscious, if you will. Well, yeah, that's a very interesting one. Um, it was, it's as, as, as most businesses do evolve, um, it isn't a straight line in terms of uh, the reality of the situation. Um, for me, it was a mixture of where I was professionally and my experience. So, for example, I had a, uh, I do have, a tremendous amount of experience in the architectural industry. Okay. And uh, so I work a lot with architects and designers, builders, developers, and I've built a, a career by being in the offices of architectural firms, giving them presentations. So these are typically highly uh, um, technical presentations um, and and having a, a, a flair and ability to uh, to speak to small groups. Generally, they're small groups of about 10 to 15 people. In some cases, they would be, you know, 30, 40, 100 people. But generally okay. speaking, you are, you know, you've got a fairly intimate environment and you're talking about something that 
they want to listen to. You're, you're being brought in to give a presentation and they're interested in your expertise, right? right. Okay. So that's where I built my experiences in having that. Now, the, the spinoff that I did with BD Consulting was mm-hmm. that that industry, I feel, has shifted a little bit. And it shifted into um, the, the fact that that position is um, a little bit more of a sales position because salespeople are becoming a little more um, educated, as is the average consumer and... Okay you know, the average business to business individual that represents, you know, a bunch of individuals in a, in a corporation, architectural firm or developer firm. So what we're seeing in the market is that the individuals are actually, um, uh, they're, they're kind of being sidestepped in terms of, you know, their qualifications and their value for making these types of presentations. And, you know, you can get the information online and, you know, you're not really there to be able to, I guess, uh, collect on all the fruits and benefits of, of what that presentation would entail, which, mean, would, which would mean uh, uh, like a project and therefore being rewarded with the project and, you know, commissions and all this kind of thing. So yeah. um, it's, it's changing a little bit. For sure. So how, how would you say that has, like, you, you explained how the situation was, I'm, I'm assuming. How yeah. would you say that has changed to now? Like, now how is the role different? If you're not going in to educate, you know, get the client, how has that changed the day-to-day, you know, in that world? Well, um, I'll speak to what I did and how I adapted. So, sure, sure. Y- yeah, yeah, years ago, my consulting company was called uh, Legend Architectural. And um, the need for an outward facing, you know, public brand was really negligible because I represented the major manufacturers, uh, you know, that, that put products into a building. Um, so, and, and typically in fenestration, which is building envelope, which is, you know, typically glass and the outer skin of the building, let's just say. Right. Right. So um, what I did is... Um, I had an interest in data and I don't know, um, you know, like data is a big part of a conversation in multiple industries. So my company and I decided to rebrand it as BD consulting. It stands for a couple, the BD component actually stands for a couple different things. Right now I like to joke that BD is for big Dan, which is my name is Daniel. So you know, I, I like to, I like to, you know, uh, you know, I like to kind of joke about that, but the, the, the BD is actually for um, business development. It's also for big data. And when I started to shift uh, my mindset and where I was focusing um, the value that I was offering some of my, my clients, and in fact, the clients that I actually were, was pursuing I was focused more on databases and developing the the databases and making it relevant for the kinds of clients that I already had. Right. So it was a bit of a reinvention and uh, yeah. So it it turned into a, a, you know, a a database consulting company. Wonderful. And, and uh, so, so this seems sort of the, the summation also, if you will, of your, uh, career, you know, starting with legend marketing to you know minimum glass and door, and then BD consulting. How did all of this uh, lead to Plank Seven? 
which is uh, you know on different lines as compared to consulting well you know that's a really good question and i think you know i want to fall into some wisdom that i think radiates <laughs> amongst everybody and okay. and isn't it true that somebody will say you know find your passion and then right. and then and build around that okay okay so okay um my passion is really uh around plank sip you know mm-hmm. and um plank sip was a brand that i started completely from scratch and uh i defined plank sip i registered as a trademark and today it actually exists as a publishing entity as a media outlet um and it's something that allows me uh to to bring in a group of like-minded thinkers thought leaders if you will but focused okay. on philosophy see the thing is is that <clears throat> i do consider myself a philosopher just simply de facto by the amount of uh education that i have and the experience and the amount of self-taught um you know philosophy that i've consumed what? so this is my passion and what i endeavored at an earlier stage is to say hey how could i make this into a viable business model and and i tell you it is a tough one to do right because and and, and I, there's an easy trick for this to figure out whether philosophy is a good business model how many philosophers are being hired today um it's not really a high demand field uh so <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, right. if you had a I mean, son I, or a I, daughter, you're the, you're the first person I know who sort of, you know, proclaimed philosopher. So, yeah, I, I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, I mean, a little bit of a sidestep on that. The, the idea sure. about being a philosopher, um, I've heard a right. lot of recommendations from people in professional fields. OK, recommending that philosophy is a really good undergraduate study to take. OK. okay? Now, the okay. reason why it's very good is because philosophy really should, okay, now here's an ethical statement, it really mm-hmm. should teach you how to think, okay? Right. Now, the idea is that, all right, well, so what does that mean if it teaches me how to think? Well, mm-hmm. if you're a business leader and you know how to problem solve, um, if you're a business leader and you understand uh, kind of the fundamentals of the way the mind works, Okay. If you know how to ask questions, um, these are really important skills. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now there's an aspect of philosophy called rhetoric and it's got a bit of a bad connotation in terms of, uh, you know, what rhetoric means today, but right. rhetoric essentially just means convincing speech. So the balance and the fine line is to be able to say, are you a good, uh, are you good at speaking? Okay. Are you clear in what you're communicating? Are you communicating truth? Okay. Or are you, com- are you a bad actor? And by that, it means are you being disingenuous with how you're communicating? Now, the fine balance is that if you can be a business leader in your community, okay, mm-hmm. as well as have all of those ingredients as a good speaker, a good communicator, and this will make you... Um, I think a really, uh, uh, it'll give you a real advantage in your community. This seems like something every business owner, if you will, should have, you know, as an effective propagation strategy, the correct approach, how, how many people are using that? 
I remember going through through an article about the PPP loans, wherein there are companies, big big publicly traded companies, who happen to register themselves there. Now that's completely uh, unethical, not illegal, but still unethical. But you see companies do that. How does your perspective fit into a business world that's sort of dominated by uh, companies like this? What? Um, sorry, I didn't quite get that. What? What registry are they uh, registering with? So I was talking just about uh, a loan that had come out in the U.S. It's the PPP loan, which was to bail out small businesses. And a lot of big companies, sort of like, for example, a big restaurant registered a chain as a small company and then claimed, you know, a loan for it, which again, in the bylaws, is not illegal but still is unethical. Mm. So just like like an example, yeah. like no, this that. is a very yeah. good. This is a very good conversation. I actually, um, <laughs> I like these kind of questions. By the way, I don't. I want to. I want to command. I want to. Um, I want to say that you're actually a very good interviewer. So you've oh, really opened. You. Yeah, you've opened a door to a very interesting dichotomy. Um, yeah. And and I think. Uh, do you mind if I focus on the United States as an example? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So um, in social science. Um, the United States of America is viewed as the the pinnacle, I guess, just to, to use an idea, of the um, or the quintessential example of the okay. individual society, the individualistic society. Okay. Now, this isn't my opinion. This is this is this is what the scientific community views the United States as is just kind of a reality. So now I'm not saying this is good or this is bad, Um, but the 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 fact is is that the um, the United States is an is an an individualistic type of um, uh, situation. Okay, now uh, it it almost seems like the lowest common denominator of of any kind of conversation these days has something to do with uh, Donald Trump, but. there is one thing that I do recognize that Donald Trump does and advocates for is that if I can get away with it, mm-hmm. then let's do it. Okay. Like right. kind, of, kind of idea. Right. So right. the idea is, is that if there's a loophole that I can find and take advantage of it, then I will take advantage of that loophole as long as it's, uh, within the, within the, like, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing anything illegal. Okay. Now right. there is some gray air areas, whether or not he does things illegal or not, but the idea is that ethics don't pay or play as much of a, a role, mm-hmm. um, you know, for his particular type of, of politics. Okay. Right. right. Now, if we were to kind of expand on that and we say, all right, um, what does that have to do with individualistic societies? Well, there is a, a mentality that it's like, look, this is the land of promise. And I'm talking about the United States. This is the land of opportunity. And so everybody kind of starts out with equal opportunity. And it's the people that go out and kind of get theirs that are able to kind of rise to the top. And, and I think if that's, that's the mentality, that's the virtue ethics that the society stands on, right, mm-hmm. um, then that cascades all the way down through society, especially if it's surrounded by a consumptive model. Um, I think societies right now are starting to stand back and look at whether this is the ideal 
type of model uh, mm -hmm. worth moving forward with. And not so much as a matter of choice, but out of necessity here, uh, we have other larger meta problems that are facing us, which, um, you know, like uh, environmental collapse and species extinction and, uh, uh, you know, the dealing with viruses and such, right, and how we value human life. All of these types of questions are going to be really important and really, really challenge that autonomy of the individual to succeed and, you know, surpass the individual, um, the individual desires and, uh, um, you know, those societies, right? So it's still left to see what kind of shakes out. But does that, do you think that kind of answers the question there? It does. And thank you. Thank you for being so articulate about it. I've been in a lot of leadership positions, you know, uh, starting with Legend Marketing to Blankset. Uh, was there a time when, you know, you were sort of answerable when you were the employee, you know, uh, to someone? And has that mindset completely changed for you? Or do you still think like that, uh, like an employee sometimes that you're answerable to someone? Well, you know, I might have a bit of a cheeky answer here, but I guess we're all answerable <laughs> to, to somebody at some point, uh, you know, as we kind of go through life. Um, right. And uh, I think, you know, if you approach that properly, it, you can you can absorb it from a from a position of, of uh, humility. Um, okay. But to more directly answer your question. Um, yeah, I've had I've had roles where I've had to take direction. I mean, one of the one of the uh, the things as a business owner is that you don't have full complete autonomy as the, you know, the person steering the ship, so to speak, because every client that you, you bring on, you have to mm -hmm. follow, um, you know, the way they want to have things done. And I'll give you an example uh, without mentioning the company or the names. Sure. Um, I do have a client that is very particular about his way of doing things how he wants to see uh, deliverables. Okay, so these are the either tangible or intangible things that we, you know, that we, we deliver as a consulting firm. And I think the ability to be able to adapt and realize that you don't always have to be the person in the room with the authority. You don't have to be the person in the room that always has the answer. And most importantly, as a business owner, this is a piece of advice that I would really, really stress to any listener out there that is thinking about starting a business for themselves, is that be dynamic enough that you don't have to force your customer into a system that is yours, okay? Right. This is very, very frustrating for clients, okay? Right, okay? This is what okay. I'd recommend. And, and by doing so, you will then um, learn to, to um, be in, in, a, in a hierarchy where that client um, is valued for their authority, their position, their expertise. And, you know, together you kind of work together, right? But um, you, ha you, can't, you can't always take the driver's seat. You need to know when to, um, you know, kind of when to back down from that position. Like of the rain. Okay. So, so it, it, sort of follow up to that, do you prefer clients who come with a clear set of uh, directives, of objectives, or would it be more clients who are, uh, you know, they have a general understanding of what they want, but leave it on you to, you know, then form the deliverables? 
Yeah. Well, you know, you'd think that it would be great if the clients were very clear with what, what they wanted. And you, you, right. you would assume that, that would, this would be the answer you'd think. But what I've actually found is that the, um, the client that's not quite sure means that they have questions. And questions are good. This is, again, I'll go back to the philosophy just for a moment and say that if you're skilled in how to decipher and break down and problem solve and communicate uh, complex problems, I guess the, the, the landscape of the problem and help the clients, you know, basically it may even, you know, come across as therapy in a way, but you need to try and massage them through the process. Right. And you need to realize that in a fast paced business world, right, there's a lot of things competing for uh, business owners or clients attention. Right. So I actually I think I have to say I actually enjoy clients that do not come to the table with a defined set of outcomes and procedures that need to be, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, an example, like a list of exactly mm-hmm. what they're looking for. Consulting inherently means that they're coming to you because of your expertise and your qualifications, right? And okay. so you want them to rely on you for that. Now, I'm not saying, for example, that a, um, a, another profession, right? If I wanted to start a business in something else, then that actually might be, that, that may change a little bit the ratio of how much prescriptive versus versus abstract engagement that you have to engage with is, is, is going to be different based on the company that you're in your business model. Right. Right. Okay. So no, uh, so we, we do the, we follow the same approach, you know, because we do a lot of CRM consulting and it's, it's more about when you have to break down like sort of what the client wants to what exactly the client needs. Now there, you know, I think that breakdown, that discussion gets much easier when the client is sort of receptive to the idea. So thank you. That's, that's, you know, sort of what I wanted to understand on your part. Okay. So uh, uh, a question again, uh, one, one different one, since you're outdoors, what's a typical working day like for you? <laughs> uh, this could be pre COVID or post, you know, uh, uh, or current scenario, but what's a working day? Can like? I, can I, can I actually, can can I actually throw something like a little bit of a curveball your way here just for a minute? Sure, sure, sure. I, sure. I, I'd like us to do a little bit of a consensus. Uh, I want to throw a question out, okay? And I want to ask okay. you a question. And I know this okay. is kind of what shouldn't happen in an interview for you. And I, I don't want to be presumptuous to, to throw it out. But why don't we, why don't we do a little vote? Um, we, we can either expand on, you know, my day-to-day activities, which is, is one thing, but I was quite interested when you, when you brought up, uh, the CRM. Okay. So the, the, uh, customer relation management tool, right. The database for, um, for businesses to be able to use and manage their, their sales pipelines and stuff. What do you, would you mind telling me about what and how you use that with your clients and then. I'll have a stab at it. Oh, uh, sure. Okay. So in, in my case, again, uh, we deal with a lot of clients that focus primarily on growth. So CRMs particularly help with that because it's, it's basically at the end, if you're looking at it as a system, it's just the company's uh, interaction, if you will, with their current uh, uh, customers and potential customers. And a whole the whole plan is to, you know, have uh, like a, 
I think it's called a customer retention value to ensure that that remains. And there's another CLV, customer lifetime value. So you want to ensure that the customer retains with you for the longest time and is a recurring customer. And whatever, uh, exa- I think it's called a sales funnel, whatever clients you couldn't convert, you sort of reach out to them, but don't be annoying and eventually get them back into the system. So it just helps them. Like, for example, if I'm dealing with 10 clients, I'm bound to slip through the cracks. That's what a CRM in in uh, my understanding helps them with hmm. yeah that's very good yeah yeah i i agree with everything you said about a crm and uh i know one of the important must-haves for a company and then this is something that nicely strings my experience together when i was the owner of a window company when i was uh a managing uh representative like a, a manufacturer's representative for uh, one of many uh, architectural products over my career, um, or just to the day-to-day of uh, uh, myself as a as a consultant, a CRM yeah. is a must. Okay, right. it's absolutely a must, um, and I will explain why. Um, okay, I think the idea is that a database. A database of your activity is really, really important, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, You want to approach a business or whatever activity you're doing from a systematic standpoint. Um, And if possible, you want to build in something that you can measure what you're doing and adjust your Mm -hmm. effectiveness based on what you're doing, okay? So... Thank you. Yeah, that's that's really <laughs> what you want to do with the database. And you know what I mentioned before that I, um, I, I naturally gravitated into um, a company that focused on big data. The mm-hmm. only reason that that was possible was from my years of using a CRM, okay, right. and my very diligent record keeping. Right. So that means when I'm talking to somebody, I make notes, I make follow ups. Um, I make sure I have all of their contact information in in its entirety in the database. You know, um, think, for example, okay, um, the the various different approaches that we have on individuals. Okay, so what I mean by this is that. you will have a Twitter account. You will have an Instagram page. You will have a Facebook pro- presence. Now, sure. it, you may not have all of them, but you'll probably have some of them, okay? And a lot of these things are related to the activity of business or the relationship that you're going to have with somebody. Right. Now, the technology at this point in time is intuitive enough, at least the good CRMs, they're intuitive mm-hmm. enough to allow you to collect that type of information and some of them actually collect it automatically. Okay. True. Right. And now the database becomes more valuable. Okay. And now you're able to kind of start building strategies to um, connect with people in ways that you never thought you could connect with them before. Okay. Um, You can build out a marketing component of your business that is unique novel and effective and most of all measurable so that's that's what i would say 
Wonderful. So that that just you know you added so many other points to you know what I said. Thank you for that. Uh, in in regards to the CRM, so that was more of since we were discussing the tools. What are other tools that you know you you rely on? Other tools, apps, etc. That you rely on uh, daily, you know, for work. Well, it's really interesting, but uh, you know the platforms that I think everybody is starting to to uh, rely on now these days are the video conferencing tools, and this is just a matter of circumstance with being, you know, locked down because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. But they are very valuable, and uh, I uh, I lean towards the, um, the emphasis of what I can do for the environment, and so. Okay. Um, Earlier in my career, I would have no qualms about jumping on an airplane and going and visiting clients and, you know, staying in hotels and all these kinds of things. And although that's still not something that I uh, completely avoid, I mean, definitely now when we're in a lockdown, that's for sure. But, um, you know, I really try and think twice about doing that. And if there's a way that I can structure my business so that I don't have to do that, Okay, that I can be on airplanes less, that I can make use of technology uh, using products like Zoom or uh, for many years I had a, uh, a product called Join Me. Um, okay. Google has a platform, but it does seem that the Zoom product has really exploded. Uh, we joke amongst uh, friends and colleagues that we really should have bought Zoom stocks prior to the outbreak, but uh, it's uh, really exploded and... Uh, it it works really well. It does. I mean, another thing you could do is because it, it, it fluctuates so much through the day, is trade options on it. I did that over the past uh, week, you know, just trading options on Zoom, sort of calls, you know, when you know it's uh, on an uptick, puts when it's going down. So that's another way you could, you know, get in uh, just, just my two cents. Oh, my friend, so, you didn't tell me that you're a stock guru, too. Okay, well, we could talk about that, too. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm not a stock guru. I just, I, I dabble in a little bit, you know, just before work, uh, because it, it uh, the East Coast opens up so much earlier than the, you know, uh, West Coast. So it, it lets you do that a little bit, you know, prior to starting work. So I, I, I like doing that. Oh, good for Anywho. you. That's, that, that's, that's really good. You know, it actually is a bit of a testament to uh, your risk tolerance, number one, um, and your right. ability to learn and be tapped into the business world, uh, however fictive the economies and the economic models that we live in uh, actually are. I, I think that's great. I think that's great. It's a wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for complimenting me on that. So again, coming back to the business. So I wanted to understand, uh, say, not, not for Planksip, because that's a that's a more recent one. But uh, what was the capital like, you know, the first time you started out on a business? Like, did you have a business plan or was it mostly driven by the idea? Well, shame, shamefully, no, I didn't have a business plan. And I mean, almost anybody that you talk to, especially if you're going to go for funding, is going to say, right. you know, where is your business plan and can you do a cash flow analysis? And, um, you know, um, I guess I was pretty fortunate because um, I've started many businesses and that's uh, without a formal business plan. Now, uh, recently, um, I have been working on business plans and my last few businesses have been really around uh, a formalized business plan. Um, I think that's really because there's an aspect to the new, to the startup that requires some seed capital, okay? And 
if you need seed capital um, or you don't, you're not self-funding it, um, then I think for the sake of being able to make a formal presentation to a bank or an investor, they're really wanting to see that you've, you know, articulated something, written something down in, a, in something that's formal, um, you know, with numbers and projections and stuff. So, okay. yeah, yeah. So, so that is not something that held you back and, you know, potentially for other entrepreneurs that shouldn't be something that should hold them back. But yes, it is important, as you're saying, you know, to, to raise that capital if you don't have it. So in that case, the business plan will come in handy. Correct? Yeah, I mean, but I guess, you know, I mean, honestly, the business landscape has changed a little bit, too. I'm 45. And, you know, we have to say that in, you know, 2020, somebody starting out a business, if they were in their 20s, you know, is going to be a, right. a lot different than starting a business, uh, you know, in, in the 1990s. You know, it's um, True. it's True. it's just a matter of, um, I think, uh, you know, where your expertise is. I'll give you I'll give you something that may laterally support this, uh, you sure. know, this concept. So if someone were to say to you, um, uh, you know, I'd like to start a business. And, you know, your number one advice to them was, was to say, well, what kind of education do you have around running and operating a business? Okay. In terms of marketing, for example. Okay. Or, you know, okay. small business operations and such. Okay. Well, a lot of the community colleges and a lot of um, the universities actually have programs now that are geared towards small business. Um, either operating small businesses, um, understanding how to be effective in your marketing strategies. And I think that, um, you know, if that actually ends up being your recommendation is to say, hey, wait a minute, if you have a client or an individual, uh, a loved one, a family member, or somebody you know that wants to start a business, um, you know, maybe step one is for them to go to the, you know, and take the, you know, the course at school. And, you know, really have kind of an understanding of how it works. My situation, I, I think I was um, always, always thinking about business, <laughs> you know, right, okay. right from the age when I was 13 years old. Um, I started a company when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old, I think. And it was a, it? yeah, it was a, it was a grocery delivery business. Okay. Um, now... <laughs> Again, you know, at 13 or 14 years old, you don't even have the ability to go out and get a driver's license. Um, but <laughs> what I was trying to do was set up the plan for that, okay? And so I went yeah. out in my community, and I would go and talk to people, knock on their doors, and I would say, okay, here, this is what I'd like to do. And, you know, I mean, think about that for a minute. Like, really, really think yeah. about that for a minute. I had not started the company. I hadn't spent a dime on the company. I didn't even have an ability to have a driver's license. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> what I was doing was I was going and having real conversations with people to get their feedback. Right. Wow. Now, if you were, you were doing your research, yeah, if you will. Okay. Yeah. And, and it wasn't passive research. It was like, I'm trying to talk to a yeah, potential yeah. customer. And, and actually, it was kind of good because somebody who is young like that people kind of root for right it's kind of like if it True. you know it's like the young little kid at the corner selling uh lemonade right if it's a lemonade you'd yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you be like oh you know that's great she's you know 
they're, they're, you know, they're starting their own little business. They're learning how money works and, you know, this kind of thing. And so you kind of want to support them, right? So what I was trying to do was preload customers into my business model so that the day I did open, okay, I would have a whole bunch of customers to start calling on. So that's, that's again, you're going with the client first approach, ensuring you have the audience for it, for whenever you release the product. I'm assuming that's how planks have worked too. And that's, that's a great approach. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not the way I did it with Planksip, but uh, Planksip (laughs) honestly is so much more abstract and it's been very, very challenging to distill that down into a business model that um, will work and then still, uh, I guess, be, uh, you know, something new. Uh, So that, that a little bit different. It's a, it's, it's more of a challenging puzzle is the way I look at it. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so uh, you, you're also, other than being a philosopher and the founder of Planksip, you're also the tiny home guy. So if you could, you know, let's, let's elaborate a little bit more about that. Was that primarily because of the architectural lines or was that a passion, if you will, from before? Both. And all oh, this is a great one. It oh. ties the two together. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I, I do actually have the URL as the tiny home And that's, uh, that's something oh, really? Yeah, I decided to jump on that. And the reason is, is that from a philosophy standpoint, I'm very, very focused on a minimal lifestyle. Okay. Now, in a, in a very concise sort of shortened uh, statement, I would say that the, the idea of a minimal lifestyle okay, is that we don't need the excesses, the excess that surrounds the typical person, okay, so, uh, and I'll use myself as an example, I don't have a TV in my house, okay, Um, I don't buy excess things, I don't exchange gifts at Christmas, okay, now that's been something that's only happened in the last few years, now, um, it's nothing that um, my family takes personally, But what I've realized, especially in the environmental crisis and reality that we face, is that you don't, and we've all been there, you buy somebody a gift at Christmas time, okay? And then six months later, it's, you know, you're recycling it, you're donating it, you're re-gifting it. It just turns into this thing where it's a waste, okay? It could come from China, it could come from the United States, it could be flown all the way around to get to your doorstep. But the utility of that gift has a, sh- has a shelf life of, you know, sometimes minutes, you know, when you give something. Do you have kids? Uh, oh, I don't you don't. Know. Okay. Well, you were a kid once, I imagine, some... right? <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> so somebody gives you something, right? And well, like, how long does it captivate your attention? It seems like video games are the things that captivate the kids' attention the longest. But... These, so, these things that a relative comes back from a trip and gives you a t-shirt or a mug or some sort of toy, then how do you value that? How long do you hold on to it? How long do you play with it? Or how long do you keep it? How long is it something that's in your life that, that, that you want to hold on to, right? Now, beyond the concept of mementos, okay, if your, your father or your mother went on a trip and brought you back something significant from a country that was tied to your family history, for example, I mean, that might be a little bit different or, you know, but, you know, 
even those types of things, when they start to compound on each other in terms of multiply, you have to really question yourself and go, well, really, what am I holding on to this for? Really, like, you know, because is it the things or is it the experiences? And we are surrounded by an upside of potential for technology to be able to create and capture uh, the experiences in a way from, you know, uh, videos and, you know, this type of engagement, you know, how we're recording ourselves and we're having this conversation. Well, there's ways to do this mm -hmm. with your family members, okay, that you can capture memories and you can be instantly transported back to those special times, right? Whether it's a, you know, a birthday, a bar mitzvah, or, you know, just a, you know, even a, even a Christmas day, you know, where you can keep reopening this gift and keep giving it back to yourself. So, this is kind of, I think, the consumptive model that I tried to avoid, um, right? Okay. Right from the beginning. And uh, I never, why don't we circle back with your question? I kind of seem to have, I don't think I really answered it a bit. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I understood the approach and I understood why you're, you're not saying that because there's so many uh, things that you could do rather than just, you know, uh, spend gifts, you know, because of digital media. Yeah, there's so much that could be stored as compared to physically having something. All right, okay. So the question was, you know, it started off with why, where does tiny homes fit, you know, in all this? Because you are the tiny home guy. So how how is that approach? How yeah, that I, well, I apologize for that uh, mental drift there. But yeah, back. thanks for pulling me back into the tiny house, uh -huh. uh, the tiny houses. So <laughs> first of all, it was based off of a philosophy, and that was that minimal lifestyle, which I, you know, uh, went on a little bit of a mental tirade on. But the um, the thing is, is that... <laughs> The, um, the client that I have, okay, and I got a pretty special client uh, in Richmond, okay, and they're the manufacturer. I'm the idea guy. I'm the philosopher. I'm that kind of guy. But okay. th this client, this particular client um, is an absolute genius when it comes to being able to make things, create things, and the quality that he creates things with um, is just at an artistic level. Okay. Artistic artesian. He's yeah. just absolutely precise. Okay. And yeah. so I've spent a lot of years in the architectural industry and um, I typically work on, well, I've worked on a lot of different projects, including the BC play stadium. I did all the owner box suites for all the stadium at the, you know, just prior to the Olympics, I've worked on hospitals I've worked on cultural centers and community centers. I've worked on schools. Um, but a lot of the projects I've worked on are on high-end residential projects, okay? So what I mean by high-end residential projects are where somebody who has enough income that they're not buying the status quo, they're spending a little bit more on a custom house, they're maybe hiring an architect, you know, to design their home, okay? And so they're spending okay. more money than the average person would on a house, okay? Or on a build, a cottage, or, you know, whatever, okay? So those are the clients that I've worked with my entire adult career. And this particular uh, manufacturer that I'm working with that built the tiny houses, he actually, um, he also services that market, Okay. Now, just to give you a comparison and the, the listeners a comparison to, you know, what kind of, um, you know, price range or construction budget would be 
typical to this market of high end. And I actually call it an ultra high end market of residential. Okay. It's going to be between um, a thousand and $1,500 a square foot. Okay. All right. Okay. So let's think about that for a minute. I don't know if you have any, um, or our listeners are, you know, savvy with real estate or anything, but typically, okay. Now this is construction costs. So typically, construction costs will run you between $250 a square foot all the way up to about okay. $500 or $600. And I'm telling you, $600 can get you a really, really nice house. Okay. I mean, nice. in, uh, and for listeners okay. that are local to our market, you know, Kitsilano, West Vancouver, you can still build for $600 a square foot and really, really have a nice okay. house. Okay. So the okay. kinds okay. of people that are building for a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a square foot, well, this starts to fall in the range of money's not so much of an object, uh, you know, isn't so much of a, a barrier for them. Okay, so a um, right. like a four thousand square foot home, okay, could could be around right. a four to six million dollar build cost. All right, so these right. are these are big dollars for somebody who wants to live in a house. Like, imagine spending four to six million dollars just to build your house. Just to have, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. So the amount of architectural design, the kind of products that you put in there, are just the highest of the highest. Right. The best of the best. Mm-hmm. Right. These are the ones that make the magazines. These are the right. ones that people are always looking at, going, "Wow, that's amazing!" Right. Okay. These are the kind of clients that that I work with and the client that's building the tiny houses is building them. Now, the reason why I draw that out in a long sort of explanation is simply this. Because he's used to working on that fine detail, because he's been hired by people in this particular industry on the Pacific Northwest and Western Canada to work on these kinds of houses. What we started out with two years ago was to take take that concept and see what it would cost right. if we shrunk it down to a 400 square foot home. That's where the tiny house came okay. in. Okay. So we put that level of quality, okay, from like the ultra, ultra high end, mm-hmm. okay, and we put it down to 400 right. square feet. Right. That means we wouldn't compromise on anything, okay? That means we put the right. very, very best window system in. Okay. Uh, it means that we put the very best heating system in and structurally we've got a, a, a structure built into this home. Okay. And so right. in the industry, when you look at tiny homes, there's some that have really good pictures. There's some that are built with mm-hmm. just conventional building practices. There's some that you can build out of a container, right? But there's very right. few that operate and have the ability to uh, produce a final product and home that you and an average person would want to live in or somebody who actually has extra money. Okay. Somebody that maybe may aspire to live in one of these really high end tiny homes, right? So it's a real high end tiny home. Okay. 
So, what would you say the the price range is of, of these tiny homes that you know you all have designed? Well, this is where the story actually even gets better because because we're yeah well because we're not <laughs> building a huge square footage, and because we don't sacrifice right. on quality, what happens is that when you go down to a smaller square footage, your price isn't right. that isn't too bad. So uh, basically, what it comes out to is a four hundred square foot tiny home is in the range of 160000 to $200,000. Wow, yeah. Like, at, at least for someone in this uh, market, you know, especially Vancouver, since it's so expensive, that's a nice alternative. Right? Yeah, well, this is what we find. And because they built it to a monumental standard, right? Okay, because we built it to a monumental right. standard. Um, oh, and by the way, a monumental standard is, is, is a really interesting term that the listeners should know. A monumental is a term okay. that architects actually use, okay? And this is the highest standard you can build something to, okay? So um, I always give the example of the Sydney Opera House, okay? okay? And with the Sydney Opera House, it's a cultural building, okay? So you don't, you don't build right. the Sydney Opera House with a, a lifespan of 20 years, right? Because... It's something that right. future generations, that's why it's cultural. It spans multiple generations. So you want this building to be around when your kids are around and possibly your kids, 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 you know, sort of thing, right? Like you want this, this thing built so that it will, uh, it will last generations. And that's, that's what he's done. So thank you so much for all of that information about tiny homes. I had a follow-up to that. Uh, I know the permits for it are a little bit different as compared to a building permit or a, you know f- f- one for building a house. How do you say that uh, is impacted? Because in a lot of places, building unless it's a tiny home complex, uh, it sometimes gets difficult to you know construct a tiny home. So how do they go about that? Oh, that's a really good question. And I, I have to point out that the launch of the tiny homes, although they were in development for uh, two years to get all the certifications, um, the, the tiny homes uh, for this particular client only launched in January. And okay. um, this year? So, yeah, this year, yeah. And okay. um, so what I have to stress is that I think n- – you know, 99% of the other tiny home manufacturers out in the market, okay, um, are producing products that are not uh, easily permittable, as, as you had mentioned. Now, um, it is important to point out that really uh, these, these tiny homes that I'm involved with, okay, right. they're really a factory-built home is essentially what they are. So the home is, is built in a factory, Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's modular. And so they fall under a specific type and part of the building code called the CSA 277. Okay? okay. And what this means is that all the aspects of the BC building code or the provincial codes are, are looked at. And this means, you know, from a plumbing standpoint, from electrical standpoint, from a structural standpoint, these are all things that have to be put in place. Um, and approved and so what happens is that the municipality so you know whatever home you're or whatever area you want to uh, you know place this structure this small home um, they really um, have a very little to object against I guess okay um, because of the way we've done it Um, now 
in, you know, without getting too technical for the listeners and stuff, um, mm-hmm. there are certain things that, that the city will override like setbacks, which means a distance and limiting distance and, you know, these distances that you have between your neighbor, okay, um, or mm-hmm. towards a covenant. So, and that means like, say there's a stream running through your property, okay, you can only build so close to that. Um, how much ratio of glass and transparent glass or, you know, solid wall you have on the building, all these types of things, right? These are the things that um, are specific to the location of, 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 of the home, okay? You know, and these are things that you have to look at on a, you know, a case-by-case basis. But okay. that being said, okay, we um, started off from the beginning, and the reason why we went to market with the CSA 277 um, was so that we would have the approvals, um, okay. you, know, for, you know, for that, right? And so we meet the BC Building Code, and we meet um you know the codes of the pro the individual provinces if if we're you know if we end up selling into alberta or saskatchewan or ontario oh, or wonderful. you know that type of thing yeah wonderful okay so so that's that's good you know for the listeners to know okay uh i had another question about that uh, industry as a whole do you see the tiny home market sort of operate in an industry that's excluded from the real estate market and to further elaborate on that, I mean that whenever there is a recession of sorts, it generally tends to affect the banks. It affects, you know, the, the big players in the game, which also affects the real estate industry. Do you see this being correlated to the tiny home industry or was, does that sort of function as an entity of its own? Well, this is this is kind of speculation on top of speculation, and uh, although I, I think, well, I, I do think it's a good question, but I think I'd be I, I I'd be at a bit of a challenge to be able to answer it without breaking it down. And I think, you know, really, I have to rely on a, um, you know, kind of the intel that's coming in. And I don't really, from what I've been able to see and survey in the real estate market, at least from our uh, our localized, um, you know, Western Canadian market. Um, I'm not seeing a decrease in, in the value of the properties yet. Okay. So right, right, right. I'm actually from, from my Intel, I'm seeing a, an uptick of, you know, 4% still on the year. I, I could be wrong. I, I don't really track the, you know, the, you know, increases. I think the the number of properties for sale has, has kind of slowed um, and people okay. listing them for sale, but I think that they've held their, at the very least they've held their own in terms of value. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Just wanted to understand if you view it as an industry sort of separate from real estate, but okay. I think it sort of ties in together. Okay. Well, I should, um, oh. I, I should add something to that though, because um, I think that with our particular brand of tiny homes, right. Right. Um, I do think that we're in a unique advantage to marry up with the real estate industry very nicely because, because of the fact that, we have the CSA 277 standard and because we're putting these homes on proper foundations, um, they actually, uh, they, they, they would fall under a PID or a registration with the registry um, of land titles. And so they actually add value to the real estate. And so they actually would dovetail very nicely into, into, into the market. It's just, it's a, it's a little bit of a new and novel uh, up-and-coming uh, approach, right? 
Okay, sweet. All right, so now just the last bit of sorts, just a couple of uh, rapid-fire questions, if you will. Uh, what is the sort of best place you've enjoyed living in, other than BC, Vancouver? Oh, well, I have to, by default, give a little bit of a props out to Saanich. This is where I'm living right now. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, I really do like Vancouver Island. Um, I have a, uh, a pull, I think, towards more of an environmental uh, culture, uh, society. Um, and I think that there's just more of them or us uh, on Vancouver Island. I think it's, 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 uh, it's more appreciated, I guess, in terms of, um, you know, the, you know, the lifestyle. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't have any hard facts on that or it's, it's a little bit more of an intuition, but I think there's a little bit more electric cars out here uh, and people okay. trying to do more recycling and play their part for the environment. I, I think it just feels that way. So I like that. Okay. Okay. Sweet. Uh, what is your favorite quote? One thing that you would sort of say to yourself whenever you're feeling down, if you will. My favorite, co- my favorite uh, code. Yeah. Your favorite quote or your favorite saying. Oh, quote. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> To, 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 to push me into a corner about my favorite quote um, would be kind of tough. Um, one of the things about the Planksit website is that I've got over 1,500 quotes on there with, uh, oh, wow. yeah, okay. and, and they've all been elaborated on. But uh, there's one in particular by Peter Schaefer that I think um, I really like. And I won't get the quote uh, down just because you kind of caught me off guard. But I'll tell you about that. No, 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 it's good. It's good. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the aspects of PlankSip is that uh, we look at trying to leverage technology and the recall for memory. Uh, I have, you know, a tremendous ability, as most people do, to learn. Uh, but one of the limiting factors is the ability to be able to recall things. So, for example, if, if, if anybody's been in a situation where they say, oh, I wish I, you know, I heard a really good joke and I'm in a situation where I wish I could remember what that joke was. You know, and so uh, our ability to recall things is not as ideal as it could be. And I've been, you know, working in Planksip to try and get that uh, an app and a technology that can help with the recall. Um, but the quote from Peter Schaefer actually has something to do with a fire that burns inside. And uh, metaphorically, you know, speaking, of course, and um, right. it has to do with the playwright. And it has to do with that particular person on stage. And when that, when that performer on stage says something that has enough of a, a fire from within him, it can contage. It, it, it has a contagion to it, okay? And, and, it, and, and it can ignite the same type of contagion within the audience. That same fire from within you can ignite with somebody else. And, and I really, really... Um, I really like the power and the energy of, 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 of that metaphysics, as you would say. Like, I think that's a really amazing thing that, that we have as, as a human species to be able to communicate and communicate that, right, that, right. Well, that, that, that viral infection of, of, of motivation. I think that's, uh, you know, quite, uh, you know, quite an impressive uh, feat of humanity to be able to do such a thing. Okay, that is deep. Wonderful. Thank you. So, uh, I sort of, you know,
what would you say is your worst ebb you know that you felt and how you bounced back from it your your worst uh, point if you will yeah i mean i've had uh in in 2016 it was a little bit of a bitter sweet in 2016 i sold my window company okay okay and uh this was uh you know something that the window stump company is still in operation it's still going it's still thriving as much as i can determine um i i don't have a lot of contact with them i've moved on to different things um but uh i think i think that's that as much as a high point was also um was also also a low point you know to be quite honest it's uh yeah. it's something where as a business owner you become accustomed to a certain lifestyle with a lot of income okay right, right. and uh having to recreate um a business or a concept again um and this this is something that i would i would translate to any new um entrepreneur is that it's terribly risky and it can be very scary at times okay and so um a lot of it is 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 luck and a lot of it is being at the right place at the right time a lot of it is skill and a lot of it is discipline but no matter what mixture of all of those that you have in your particular situation um it is it can be stressful right uh especially if bills pile up or you know you're trying to make a success out of your new endeavor um you know it's 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 uh it's been uh, not a straight line since 2016 for me so to be honest that's that's been a bit of a a bump since me uh you know for me since uh 2016 oh okay yeah all right so i, I again i i know it you know get better if you will and it has you know with with blank slips so Uh, thank you for sharing that. Would that also sort of translate with the biggest success? Like as you mentioned, it was a high and a low that day. Um, well, the biggest success, I would have to say, um, no, I wouldn't say that was my biggest success. I think, um, you know, I'm starting to measure success in different ways, um, right. and I and I and I do feel, um, you know, oddly right now at at a a very successful standpoint. just simply because i've got uh, a very very strong mind now this is only you know the judge of one who's kind of recounting it back to you but the idea is that i feel really good in terms of um you know what i'm learning what i'm doing the value that i'm bringing my community um and i do i get a i i get a lot of great feedback from uh the people's lives that i affect and and uh you know this is really important so you know it takes a while to get your you know your your entrepreneurial leg so to speak and if you and if you decide to you know switch gears and try something new it's always very difficult to reinvent yourself and so i do actually think that i'm at a high point just simply because i'm doing what i love with planksip there's a an aspect of planksip that i absolutely love it was um it was building a community community of journalists and writers I mean this was a big this is a big deal. Um it's trying to give voice and income to people to writers that just don't don't have an ability to earn income from, you know, expressing themselves in a in an academic sort of way, right? Like um I don't know, are there any books for example that you like to read that um you you're, you know, really really excited about that you want to share with 
you know, the rest of the world? Um, you know, it's a bit of a rhetorical question, but I can throw it back to you if there is anything that comes to mind. Um, what, do, what do you think? Uh, well, books, no. I've, I've just been reading uh, a couple of inspirational ones. There was one about Grant Cardone and the 10x rule. And in, in fiction, I've been reading uh, a lot of Jeffrey Archer's. There's one, I think, The Testament, I forget. So it, it's been sort of a mix of, I think that's why John Grisham, though, uh, one of the old classics. But those are sort of the books, you know, like I was looking at. It wasn't really... Uh, but it's it's more about seeing inspiring stories and, and learning from it. Like, as you just pointed out, 2016 would have, you know, changed course in a different way had you thought differently. But that led to you, you know, thinking in a different approach. So stories like that is what I enjoy reading, learning from. So for me personally, a story that sort of fits in all of these parameters, that's something that I enjoy reading. Huh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a big advocate of literacy. And uh, I think, you know, the more you can read, the better. I just hope that you, you know, you pick, I, 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 I got to give a shot out for any of the classics. So try and read, you know, some of the classic uh, philosophy books like Plato or Aristotle or, you know, uh, these types of things. Will do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Will they're do. great. So, they're great. Okay. So uh, since we, we you know we got uh, too deep into that, what is just a random question out there? What's your favorite hobby, and how often do you get to indulge in it? Well, I, <laughs> you know, you know, I, 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 I think there's been a little bit of a, you know, foreshadowing to this answer or this this thing is this, is that really it's it is it's about reading and writing. Right. It's really about okay. creating okay. and uh, it's absolutely my passion. So, you know, the more I can kind of, you know, flip the laptop open in a quiet environment and put my headphones on, maybe listen to an audio book and then at the same time, pull the printed copy of the book up in front of me and nice. really explore a book. OK, and I mean, like a real classic book, one that really, really makes you think. And then I write notes and I create articles and I do research and I'm just in a moment, I'm in a flow state of learning. That, that to me is the hobby that I built Planksip around. And so this is what I, I really enjoy doing. This is, this is the solitude time that I, that I really thrive within and, and uh, yeah, I'd like to share it with the world. So Oh, I'm glad. So you're, you're basically living out your hobby. So that's that's the dream. So that's great. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So just the last two questions, if you will. Uh, the last, uh, second last one, uh, the penultimate is, uh, do you have any, you know, based on your personal experience, any tips for diversifying your portfolio? Because a lot of entrepreneurs put all of their eggs into one basket, which works, you know, when you're Elon Musk and when you have a goal and the backing to do it. Uh, but, you know, for another, uh, for an investor starting out, for an entrepreneur starting out, any suggestions on how to streamline that, how to have multiple sources of income? Um, well, okay, so you've asked a couple questions. So I think in terms of diversifying your portfolio and all these types of questions that we actually approach, um, you know, people with, I think the most important thing is going to be discipline. Um, and I really, really do encourage everybody uh, uh, you know, to focus and always remember one piece of wisdom. I'll tell the listeners right now, anybody that's listening, that there is one for sure, absolutely for sure way to double your money. And do you know what it is? 
studying, learning. No, you, you double your money by taking your money and folding it in half and put it in your pocket. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> That's where you've uh, doubled your that, money. You just, just fold it in half and put it in your pocket. Wouldn't that be having your money though? Wouldn't that be having your money though? <laughs> well, you know, there's some, there's some wisdom to that. So what it... So what it really means is just don't spend it, hold on to it, save it in a very diligent way, um, minimize your spending, um, and save. There's a compounding effect of money, and we can try and diversify and diversify, but be careful how much you diversify your mind, okay, and where your mind's going to go. I've invested in the stock market myself, and you have to say to yourself, do you want to spend your time, um, excuse me, I had a sneeze there. I'm honestly not allergic to money. It's just, uh, you know, it's probably all the pollen that's out right now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, what I've been able to gather from my experience is that, look, I can anticipate how do I want to spend my day? Do I want to open up the stock charts and look at it and find out where I'm tracking and where my net worth is on a daily basis, right? Or do I want to be able to tie the activities that I'm doing into a growth strategy Mm -hmm that's going to provide for me, right? Because the stock market is a bit like gambling. Well, it's a lot like gambling. And so if you can have the mindset, this may, this is a little bit anti-intuitive, but I do it from an educational standpoint. Mm -hmm. You want to be further off tomorrow than you were today. That's the goal. And so the easiest way to do it, and that's why I'll bring back that quote. I believe it was by uh, a business guru by the name of Hubbard. I think I can't, can't remember. It's a very old, quote or i i learned it more than a decade ago and it and and it just simply is it has that wisdom of being able to hold on and save your money right and so over the long run you know you may be very business savvy you may hit a a few good stocks you may go up you may go down but just like vegas Mm -hmm. where are you going to be at in 20 years and 50 years where are you going to be Right. And how much is enough? So I would say just limit how much you think you need and and okay. save and be very prudent with your money. That's what I would suggest to anybody. Wonderful. OK, that was a very nice uh, you know, breakdown. So thank you for that. The last question, since, you know, you are uh, environmentally conscious, uh, do you buy coffee outside? And if you do, when was the last time you went and bought one? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, if I have a business meeting, I'll kind of, uh, you know, go to um, a Starbucks or a Blends Cafe or something like this, or even a, there's a few local ones uh, that aren't okay. chains that I, I, I go to. Um, but I would say that was probably about at least a month ago right now with the, the lockdown. Um, right. Besides that, I like to have maybe a coffee in the morning and I'm actually switching more to decaf. I find that the, the, the buzz of coffee kind of gets me too jittery, you know, and <laughs> yeah. Right. So, but, uh, uh, there, there, there was a study I remember reading that coffee sort of rewires the, your neurons and, and that is why like a lot of people without realizing, I guess, get addicted to coffee. I don't know how much of it is true, but I don't have coffee. So uh, I, I do on occasion, mm. but yeah. Okay, sweet. So again, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, Daniel. 